0: is perhaps the least understood and one of the most maligned of the disciples. But there's no one quite like Thomas. He was a natural skeptic, often leaning towards pessimism. He's the kind of person who uh, sees problems more clearly than he sees solutions. He wanders in the dark more than he walks in the light. His mind is full of questions and even answers that are acceptable to almost everyone else do not satisfy him. He is an analyst. He likes to tear things apart and look at them to see how they work. Well, I agree with the first sentence of that assessment but completely disagree with the rest. It's only in John's Gospel that we have a record of anything that Thomas said. The only other mentions of him in the other Gospels are in the list of disciples or his presence at Pentecost. What he says in John's Gospel gives us an opportunity to see into his heart. And this morning I want to do that through four scenes. The first scene is emergency call. Jesus and his disciples had barely escaped from Jerusalem and death at the hands of the mob who were ready to stone him. And while resting in the northeast of the Jordan, they received this urgent message, this, this call, Lazarus, the close friend of Jesus, is seriously ill, and Mary and Martha were asked, have asked, rather, for help. The disciples nervously wait to see what Jesus will do. And then he says, let's go. And immediately there was anguish and confusion and protest. And they said, in effect, Lord, this is madness to go back to Judea. They will murder you. You see, it was not only Jesus' life which is now on the line, but also theirs. But then, in the midst of the hubbub, Thomas, in a quiet voice, says this. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us go, that we may die with him. Here is Thomas, bravest of the brave, loyal, committed, and courageous. His determined word in the midst of the hubbub settled the matter. He was saying, Lord, if you die, I don't want to live. Are these the the words of a sceptic? Are these the words of an agnostic? Are these the words of a heretic? I think not. And it's interesting that nowhere does Jesus actually condemn Thomas, even when he doubted the resurrection. Then we come to scene two. Where do we go from here? In John 14, and verse 1, we read this. Jesus speaking to his disciples before uh, the events of the the, uh, leading up to the cross happened, he said this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. This is a couple of weeks after after Lazarus' resurrection, or resuscitation rather. And, it's in the, and they're in the upper room just before the Passover. And Jesus is preparing his men for his departure. He's wanting to give them hope for the dark passage that is before them. Thomas, hearing these words, he can't keep quiet. And he blurts out, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So how can we know? the way. These are not the words of a defiant sceptic. Rather, they are the words of a pleading realist who is conscious of the threatening, darkening clouds that are now gathering around their Lord. And he is saying to Jesus, all that you've said is okay. But what about the kingdom here and now that we are waiting for? You see, not only is Thomas committed and courageous, but he is totally honest. He will not sit and nod as though he understands something when he does not. In fact, Peter had asked the same question in the previous chapter. Thomas is perplexed and he wants to be clear about what Jesus is saying. I remember years ago when uh, computers first came on the scene and I was uh, in a meeting in Melbourne with uh, other state representatives of Baptist unions and uh, we had this fellow come in who was an IT expert. And (laughs) anyway, he was talking on for about uh, over 20 minutes in all computer language. And I was totally at sea. I had no idea what he was saying. Anyway, after about 25 minutes, I put up my hand and I said, excuse me, I haven't understood a word you're saying. (laughs) Could you put it in layman's terms? And everyone around the table said, yes. (laughs) That's what Thomas was doing. He was not prepared to sit there and not understand what was going on. Now we're ready for scene three. Where is Thomas? In chapter 20 and verse 19 we read this. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. What a scene this was. The disciples, as it were, huddled together in fear, not knowing what their future was going to be. When there would be a knock on the door, in fact, the door broken down, And they would be arrested. And then all of a sudden, from nowhere, Jesus just appears in their midst. What a moment that must have been. And it says something about the resurrection body of Jesus. That on the one hand, he can eat food. But somehow there's something about his molecular structure that it can just quietly come through a wall. We know that John completely believed in the resurrection when he looked in the tomb with Peter and saw the linen cloths lying on the ground. But even though he believed that, and now when Jesus appeared before the disciples, they believed it. What about the future? What was going to happen? This was completely uncharted territory for the disciples. Although Jesus had spoken of it in conjunction a number of times with his crucifixion. Then we read, Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Before we condemn Thomas, look at what Matthew says after Jesus had revealed himself again to the disciples and just before he gave them the great commission, this is what he said to them. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Can you believe that? Here is the resurrected Lord standing right there in front of them. And they're worshipping. But some still did not believe. I mean, what did they think? That there was a phantom there or a mirage? The risen Christ was right there in front of them. And they still were doubting. So the question arises in our minds, why was Thomas not there on that first appearance to the disciples? I want to suggest to you that Thomas was not there because his heart was broken with grief. Remember, Thomas, along with all the other disciples, had left everything to follow Jesus. He he and the other disciples had staked their whole life and future on the future of Jesus. And in the early days of mission, it was great. Thomas was living the dream. Jesus was popular with everyone. His miracles brought healing and hope to many, and even the religious authorities began to have some kind of respect for him. But but then it all began to go sour when Jesus said he had the power to forgive sins, which everybody knew only God had that power. Thus, Jesus was claiming to be God. From that moment on, it all went south. After hearing his demands of discipleship, even the crowds did not return. And then the worst was the night before the crucifixion. Thomas knew it was all over. And it was only a matter of time before Jesus would be murdered on the cross. Jesus himself had said that a number of times. Thomas had seen and felt all this He had seen that even if it cost his life, he would see it through to the end. But that night when he saw Jesus meekly submit to the authorities, he could not believe it. Like the rest of the disciples, he believed passionately that Jesus would overthrow the Romans like Moses overthrew the Egyptians. In fact, he and the other disciples were so convinced of this that they discussed Who was going to be the greatest in the new kingdom on earth? And did not Jesus bring calm and peace in the storm? Had he not raised Lazarus from the dead? How then could he possibly let the authorities take him? Especially when he said to Peter, I can call a legion of angels to deliver me. That night, Thomas's life was shattered. His vision and his hope were gone and he ran like the other disciples. Where he went, we do not know, but uh, he was alone, lost in his grief. I never really understood how powerful grief could be until as a young minister, I had to minister to a family whose 13-year-old daughter, while driving, riding her bike into her uh, drive of her house, was knocked over by a car and killed. And I'll never forget the grief of those parents, the anguish, the sense of loss, the sense of emptiness. And I remember the mother saying to me, John, why has God allowed this to happen? Well, I could have given her a biblical answer, but I knew I just had to be quiet and let her express the depth of her grief and loss. That's what I think Thomas was going through here. There was a disillusionment with Christ. And also, that disillusionment can also be with Christian people. I've met people who were once committed Christians, but they are no longer in fellowship. And they did not leave because they don't believe, but they've left because of a broken heart, when what was promised to them by other Christians and the church was not delivered. They left because they were given false hope, and it fell apart. And disillusioned, they walked away. What I'm saying here is that for Thomas and for these people, other people who have walked away, is that it was emotional and relational suffering. It was heart issues, heart pain, that fueled their doubting of everything else. What they didn't find is what Philip Yancey relates from a fellow Bible college student, reflecting on her Christian experience back then. She said this, I loved my Christian lifestyle. I didn't love God. Then her life was ruined by a broken marriage and other devastating situations. Then she says, But since then, I have been the recipient of the scandalous grace, Philip, that you write about. At a time in my life when I wanted and expected to have hands full of gifts and accomplishments for God, I came to him with empty hands. Yancey then says, It was only when she felt the goodness and mercy of God that a deep contentment and peace settled amid her pain and sorrow. And today she is now in a teaching position in a missionary situation. She nearly lost her faith because of disillusionment with people. So you see, when Thomas saw Jesus taken and then crucified, he felt totally let down because it seemed that Jesus was not all that he said he was. Thomas felt, if I can put it in this way, that he had been burned and he was not going to be burned again. But having said that, the truth is that Thomas himself was the cause of his own despair and grief. Why? Because Thomas, along with the other disciples, did not listen to what Jesus said. He only heard, along with them, what he wanted to hear. You see, Jesus had told the disciples, which included Thomas, that the crucifixion would be followed by the resurrection. It was going to happen. In fact, when Jesus came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew records this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, at the hands of the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. In spite of Jesus' repeated warnings about the future, the disciples just did not get it. They did not believe it. They saw the miracles and the amazing power and the glory of Jesus and thought, yes, he's the one. And then you combine that with the current belief that was running around Israel at that time. That when the Messiah comes, it will be the day of the Lord. When all the nations will be overthrown and Israel will rule in Jerusalem as the servant of God. That's what they expected. That's what was in their minds. So when Jesus spoke repeatedly about going to the cross, they didn't hear it. So when it all happened, they blamed Jesus. They felt deceived. But in fact, they had deceived themselves because they had not listened to what Jesus asked, uh, said rather. And they did not ask him to explain and expand on what he had said so that they would be clear about it and of what was in, in, front, in front of them. In fact, we read this. Peter said, uh, after the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter took him aside, note this, to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. He just told them again about the crucifixion, the resurrection. And Peter said, no, 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 it's not going to happen to you. And then he got the most stinging rebuke anyone could, could receive. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Can we see why it is so important that we know the Scriptures and we take seriously what the Scriptures say so that we do not fill our minds with dangerous and false expectations. This is especially relevant to today, when there is so much rubbish that comes over YouTube and the internet, people proclaiming all kinds of devious things and they say it so well and so crisply and so succinctly and it's so persuasive. A very good doctor friend of mine was saying to me, John, I almost got taught up in this particular heresy. It was so persuasive. That's why we must study the scriptures, understand the scriptures, search the scriptures, so that we have a framework to deal with the false teaching that comes across, but also That we might know the whole truth and not just the truth that we want to hear. You see, in the disappointments of life, the truth of God is not an anesthetic against the feelings of grief and despair, but it gives us a framework to understand what is going on and what to expect. And now to scene four of Thomas, I believe. It's now a week later and Thomas is with the disciples again. He was drawn back because Peter and John, who he trusted, were completely confident that they had seen Jesus. We do not know, we do know rather that there comes a time in grief when you have to reconnect, when you have to pick up the pieces again and go on. And that's what Thomas is doing here. And then again, Jesus appears to them in exactly the same way as he had before. Look at what he says. A week later. It's almost like the verse we read before uh, repeated. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. He does his thing again, coming through the wall. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said, My Lord and my God. I think this is one of the most wonderful scenes in the whole of the Bible because it gives to us such a clear picture of the grace of Jesus. Jesus comes To his confused, his devastated, his grief-stricken disciple, who is longing for confirmation, longing that he has not made a mistake, longing that what Peter and John said to him is true. And when Jesus comes, there is no condemnation, only invitation. Jesus is saying, Thomas, reach out and touch me. I'm here. I'm not a phantom. I'm not a mirage. Look at the wounds. Do what you said you wanted to do. When Thomas realised that there indeed was the risen Christ, Like that very first verse in the first scene of his life that we looked at, Thomas the loyal, the brave, the courageous, he says, my Lord and my God. That's what it means to believe in the resurrection of Christ. It means that Jesus is the living presence in our life by the Holy Spirit. It means that he is Lord of all. He's not like some act that we've added to our life. He is our life. As Paul said, for me to live is Christ. And this morning, I just want to encourage anyone who may be struggling. Struggling with holding to the faith. Struggling to understand why things go wrong in the church and feeling somewhat disillusioned. I encourage you to reach out like Jesus told Thomas to do. Reach out and you will find is there. I remember some two or three years ago saying to a very close friend of mine who had walked away from Jesus. I said to him, Terry, if you would go back, and he was a minister by the way who had completely dropped out. I said, Terry, if you would go back and begin to read John's Gospel again you will meet Jesus again. And he did. And he met Jesus again. And he died a couple of years later at one with his Lord, at peace with God. You see, God is so behind his word. when His word is God himself speaking. And he said through Jeremiah 29 and verse 13, and you shall seek me, but when you seek me with all your heart, then, then, then you shall find me. If we want to know Jesus Christ for the first time, if we want to go deeper in our Christian walk with Jesus, we need to search for him with all our heart, that he is our life. That like Thomas, we can say, well, if if you're not real, then I don't want to live. But like Thomas, proclaim by life and lip and by deed, my lord and my god so i trust this morning you'll think more kindly about thomas than you have in the past let's pray Our